The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Our text tonight outlines the roles and responsibilities of the three main leadership offices of Israel, the, of the king, the priest, and the prophets, and uh, helps us understand their scope and their purpose, but ultimately point us to the one who fulfills all three offices, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so let us, let us read as I begin in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. Moses writes, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law, and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The Levitical priest, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers, for the Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. And this shall be the priests do from the people, from their offering, a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. And then skipping down in verse 15 and following. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers." And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? 
When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father God, I would ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Historians tell us that after the Revolutionary War, as America was establishing its independence, that George Washington, uh, the general, was so revered among the populace that had he desired it, had he insisted, he very well may have been crowned king of America. Um, And so we would have one more monarchy, uh, and and not the republic that was intended by the uh, signers of the Declaration of Independence. And we can give some credit to Washington's humility, his, his depth of understanding, recognizing the, the, the human nature and our depravity. And so he gave his full support to the separation of powers in the federal government with checks and balances to hold men accountable for the power that they temporarily hold. In the popular Marvel film Avengers, the chief villain Loki makes a pronouncement to a crowd at one point in the film where he declares that the humans were made to be ruled. Well, in one sense, Loki was right. We are made to be ruled, but not by a cruel dictator, but rather by the Lord our God. You'll notice that all three of these offices of leadership in Deuteronomy 17 and 18 are all under the authority of God and his word. And Scripture would tell us that without accountability, without checks and balances, mankind in their sin nature will abuse power, will will rationalize misbehaviors that are both an offense to God and lead to the oppression of other people. But sadly, many followers of leaders will, will allow their leaders to get away with their behaviors and their evil deeds in exchange for something they desire, whether that's comfort or peace, security, entitlements, privileges. Each party overlooking the faults of the other to maintain the status quo and to enable further corruption. As far as I understand it, Moses was the one man in Israelite history who who effectively held all three offices as prophet, priest, and king. The one man who was meek enough to bear the weight of that responsibility. But, of course, Moses was flawed and a sinner and was ultimately disqualified from entering into the promised land. And all the men who came after him to fill these roles were also weak and sinful men and whose time in office only reminded the people of their weakness and their neediness and was intended by God to nurture in them a desire, a longing for one to come, who was a truly benevolent king, a completely compassionate priest, and a bold, truth-speaking prophet, the promised Messiah. What we hope to do tonight is to outline the characteristics of these offices uh, the, the qualities that these leaders were uh, intended by God to, to maintain and to exemplify, but also understand how they lead us to understanding Jesus Christ. 
the one who ultimately fulfills and meets our every need for righteous rule and representation before God. Now, Moses knew his people well. He knew that eventually they would want a king like the nations. And it's fascinating that God anticipates that, and he grants permission. Although God was their king, he gave them permission to have a human king, as long as he was a man that God chose and that the the people followed these stipulations. The the, uh, king of Israel must be an Israelite, not a foreigner, not one who would lead them astray to worship false gods. You have the stipulation that he must not acquire horses or, or go back to Egypt. What's that all about? Well, it likely means uh, that they were not to build uh, alliances with pagan nations, nor were they to trust in their military might. There's also uh, a concern here about trade, and history tells us that Israelites would oftentimes trade mercenary soldiers in exchange for horse and weaponry, essentially enslaving their young men to a pagan force. The king that God chooses shall not acquire for himself uh, wives, more multiple wives, who will ultimately lead and turn his heart astray. In fact, in, in that day, it was not uncommon for kings to marry the daughters of other kings of neighboring nations to build blood and kinship relations and to strengthen alliances. And, and you, you understand that the, the net effect is to water down Israel's faith, as the king seeks to please foreign wives. And we see this exhibit A in King Solomon, whose heart was turned astray by marrying multitudes of foreign wives and also accumulating the gold and the silver and trusting in riches that this final stipulation warns against. Well, on this same day off in London, on our LEAP short-term mission trip last month, we spent part of our time at the Tower of London, Uh, which really isn't a tower, it's a fortress, Uh, a massive fortress that dates back to the the 11th century, uh, the first structure built by William the Conqueror. And uh, over the centuries, the Tower of London has, in many ways, been been a prison, although although the home sometimes to the monarchy, uh, a prison and a place of execution. Uh, There's a very bloody history in the Tower of London, fascinating if you get a beefeater to uh, lead you on a tour. And uh, you'll recall that the, the notorious King Henry VIII uh, executed no less than two of his own wives, as well as his trusted advisor, Thomas Cromwell, among many others, perhaps hundreds, that he executed as threats to his power. Well, the Tower of London, though it no longer at, serves as a prison or as a place of execution, it's still a vault. Uh, it houses the crown jewels. And you can take a tour and see the beautiful crown jewels that, that they had not been brought out in all their glory since 1952, back when Queen Elizabeth II was last coronated, though she does wear her crown uh, every year when she addresses Parliament uh, for the beginning of the legislation year. And I'm a typical American who always kind of poo-pooed and thought the idea of royalty is kind of silly, but you walk through there, you're impressed that the history and the tradition and the riches and the splendor, and you kind of get into it, uh, and you can see why the British, they, they love their royalty. They, they love their queen. And the people desire a king like the nations. They want someone to represent them. They want someone who can amass uh, the wealth and the splendor and the glory and the best that our nation and our culture can, can represent. 
And so you see the temptation, you see the desire for royalty, and you see why God in his word provides stipulations. And this last stipulation is the most important of all, that the king is to write himself a copy of the law, to read it, to meditate upon it, to uh, uh, let it go down deep in him, to guide his thinking and his ruling and his judging. He is not to be a law to himself. Rather, he is to read the law daily so that he might fear the Lord and rule in righteousness. To be reminded that his is a borrowed power. That he is not above his fellow Israelites. Certainly not divine, nor does he have any divine rights. And of course, this will be an issue throughout Israel's history of self-centered egotistical kings taking power and abusing it over and above their subjects. Jesus addresses this issue in his own disciples who on one occasion were jockeying for positions of power in their anticipated kingdom. And Jesus said, Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God establishes the rule of the leader is a servant leader. That's his design that he, for any man that would exercise authority in the government, in the church, or in the home, must be a servant leader to honor and please God. Well, obviously, in Israel's history, very few, king, ex- very few kings exemplified servant leadership, uh, nor did many of them adhere to the restrictions that are laid out here in Deuteronomy. And sure enough, in time, uh, the elders would approach Samuel late in his life and request and demand a king like the nations. And you recall that this first king, Saul, was a complete disaster. A, 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 a very insecure, paranoid, murderous man who was more committed to his own self-preservation than to God's glory. And the text in Samuel says that the Lord regretted making Saul king, just as he had regretted making man and brought on the flood in the days of Noah. And so God directs Samuel to anoint David as king, who establishes uh, the, the, the standard by which all other kings are measured, the high watermark of righteousness and godliness in, uh, in Israel's history. Uh, with all of his military campaigns, expanding territory, building up riches, uh, establishing security for the nation. He even wrote a few psalms, in fact, quite a few psalms. Half of our hymn book, or psalm book, comes from the pen of David. And yet even David, was guilty of adultery and murder and marrying multiple wives and and abusing power on several occasions. And yet David also displayed a tender heart, a man after God's own heart, of demonstrating a genuine contrition and repentance that's very rare uh, in the history of God's people. Of course, David's son Solomon will go on to become the most successful failure of all of Israel's kings, one who was wise and wealthy and yet worldly, who violated these restrictions of God with impunity. The people got what they wanted. A king like the nations with all their pomp and their wealth and their abuse and their idolatry and their folly and destruction. In exile, the people wanted in a king security, and yet became insecure. They desired in their king a, a pathway to prosperity, but ended up in poverty. They sought autonomy 
which resulted in being subject to the pagans. Sadly, God's people lacked the zeal and the hunger for God's word, the contentment with his provision, the humility in unable to trust the Lord their God as king. You know, many believers presently lament that we seem to have very few rulers and government officials who regard constitutional limits, uh, even fewer uh, respect the word of God. Many believers find themselves in a quandary, not sure how to vote in November with seemingly two candidates of the two major parties, neither of one who seem adequate uh, to fill the office in the minds of many. And I'm not here to tell you how to vote, but I want to encourage you to take your frustrations and disappointments to the Lord. Let this current season of political disarray to deepen our longing for a righteous king. You know, we we can empathize with the disciples, the followers of Jesus. They thought they had found him. They thought they had found the reincarnation of King David. They thought they had found the righteous man they were looking for, who was bold as a lion, who was full of compassion on the needy, who was wise, wiser than Solomon. After centuries of failure, of of royal failure, of being subject to the Gentiles, of suffering the humiliation of Roman rule, they were looking for someone to get rid of the yoke of oppression, to lead the people in revival, to restore independence, to establish the rule of law, to end the corruption, to enable the people of God to flourish once again like in their golden years. And then Jesus was betrayed and handed over to the pagans accused falsely and crucified like a common criminal. Disciples were devastated. They were disillusioned. Many of them were tempted to despair like Judas, perhaps tempted to take their own lives. But it would be days later that they began to see a flicker of hope. Jesus was not the ruler they were looking for. He was much better. He was a savior that they needed, who broke the reigning power of sin, who resurrected to be seated at the right hand of God, to rule from heaven, who promises to return, who gave them the Holy Spirit to lead them in truth and righteousness until his return. Believer, no matter who wins in November... No matter who gets appointed to the Supreme Court, no matter who holds sway in the political whims of this season of American history, God reigns. Jesus Christ is on his throne, and he will establish his kingdom irregardless of what happens to America, irregardless of what happens to Britain, to Europe, to the great powers that be here in the 21st century. But you and I are ambassadors for Christ who have been enabled with the gospel to live with a measure of patience and perspective, determined to please our king, unruffled by the nonsense of wayward politics. Kingdoms rise and fall. But you and I are part of a kingdom that is advancing against the gates of hell, and the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. So let me just suggest that we can complain less 
and pray more, that we should long less for the ideal presidential candidate and long more for the return of Christ. May we repent when we're acting like little kings and queens ourselves. Repent of our entitlements and our demands and our bossy behavior. May we live less for our own welfare and prosperity. May we live more to the honor of King Jesus to spread his fame, to prepare friend and foe to meet him on the day he returns. Well, the next chapter, 18, moves on to the next two of these offices of of Israel. And chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, is by no means an exhaustive description of the Levitical priesthood, but does give us a snapshot that the Levites were the tribe set apart to lead Israel in corporate worship, to instruct them in the law. They were responsible for the house of worship, which was a mobile tent that became uh, the permanent and impressive uh, temple in Jerusalem. And uh, the Levites lived off the faithful offerings of pious Israelites. They did not receive a land inheritance because the Lord himself was their inheritance spread out throughout uh, the promised land. And there were some good, some very good priests. Think of Phinehas, the son of Aaron, who speared a, an idolatrous Israelite in his tent with a Moabite woman. There was the courageous and decisive Jehoiada who preserved the fledgling Davidic dynasty when he hid little King Joash from his grandmother Athaliah after her massive bloodbath and preserved him until the time to crown him as king and to overthrow her idolatrous reign. There were many priests that, that gave their lives under the murderous wrath of King Saul, who slaughtered 85 under the false accusation that they were planning a coup with the fugitive David. There were the priests commissioned by Hezekiah and by Ezra to lead Israel in reform and repentance. But sadly, by Jesus' day, the, the family of priests that controlled the high priesthood had largely become corrupt a little more than power brokers who negotiated with Rome to help them control the people in exchange for preserving their privileges. And uh, the leadership body known as the Sanhedrin, which was made up of many of the high priest family, uh, were little more than cynical materialists who who questioned the, the bodily resurrection and who showed very little interest in Jesus' teaching on the kingdom or righteousness. And so by that time, the people became a bit cynical about their priests. They didn't have godly priests. They didn't have compassionate priests to lead them. And we believe today that uh, ministers of the gospel are the equivalent of priests, equipped by God to lead God's people in worship and instruction and the word of God. But the, the fundamental purpose of the priest is to represent the people to God to prepare them for worship and to meet the Lord their God. And in fact, the high priest of Israel would make atonement once a year by applying, sprinkling the blood of the sacrificial lamb in the Holy of Holies at the mercy seat of God to appease God's holy wrath. John the Baptist declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus prepared his disciples on multiple occasions, insisting that he must suffer, be handed over to the Gentiles, and be put to death in brutal fashion. And they didn't understand. And Peter rebuked Jesus, only to be rebuked in turn from Jesus, who insisted that Peter was in league with Satan against him. The book of Hebrews reminds us that 
priests are mortal, and the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. Those sacrifices performed year after year, month after month, day after day, serve as a constant reminder to Israel that your sin needs atonement. Your sin needs to be washed and cleansed and purified. It created in Israel a desire for a priest, a truly righteous one, a, a one and final sacrifice for sin. We desire a priest who can represent us, who can identify with us, who has compassion on us in our weakness. And God has met our need, our deepest desire, with an everlasting priest who died a sacrificial death to atone for our sins once and for all. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus is our sympathetic high priest who knows our weakness, who was tempted in every way that you and I have been tempted and yet remained without sin. And he now reigns as king and intercedes for us as our priest. And you and I have a righteous ruler to whom we can appeal to for justice. And we also have a perfect high priest whom we can appeal to for mercy. One who identifies with us, who has taken up our body and our weakness, and yet presents us to God in his own righteousness. Well, the office of the prophet, in some ways, is the murkiest of the three. They were less common. They did not pass on the, the office of prophet to their sons that was not institutionalized like the kings or the priest. But the priest had a role, an important role of God to call Israel back to repentance, to renew their covenant with the Lord their God. And you had the great prophets like Elijah and Isaiah, Jeremiah and Daniel who confronted rebellious kings. You had the early prophets of Moses and Elijah and Elisha who performed miracles among whom none of the others, as far as we know, performed any. They were men who spoke for God, whose word burned like fire in their bones as they pronounced judgment upon an apostate nation and warned them of coming exile. And our text offers us a kind of double fulfillment and a, a, a prophetical office that would be fulfilled by many different individuals, and yet one final prophet, anticipating the one prophet to whom... We must listen to, Moses says, listen to the man of God who speaks in God's name, who, whose teaching is consistent with the law and whose predictions are proved true. The prophet Micaiah put his own words to the test when he predicted that Ahab would die in battle as he was contending with the false prophet Zedekiah. Jeremiah took on the false prophet Hananiah, mocking his words which were trying to dissatisfy and pacify the fearful Israelites who were just hoping that God would relent and turn the Babylonians away against Jeremiah's sure word that exile was coming. We don't have false prophets today, but we have many false teachers who are eager to scratch people's itching ears to tell them that hell is no more. Or that it's not forever. That God requires only our best efforts. That he is not completely holy. He's the God of love only. Where God's aim is merely our own peace, affluence, and happiness, and health. 
that perhaps we can care for the poor and rectify economic injustice, that we can relieve earthly sufferings without any concern for eternal suffering. There is much false teaching rampant today in church pulpits, in the pulpits of talk and TV talk shows, in books, those who would peddle their pop psycho babble affirming basic human goodness. We have no prophets today, but we have God's word. That has been left to us by the prophets and the apostles. And Peter helps us when he writes that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Peter is using the Greek term that refers to a ship being borne along by the wind. That the prophecy is that which was breathed out by God by means of the instruments of his prophets and apostles. Paul says likewise that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And, of course, Hebrews tells us that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, penetrating and dividing our soul and our spirit, revealing, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We don't need fanciful reinterpretations of Scripture to try to mold Scripture to the times, to mold it to make our lives more comfortable and easy. No, we need those who are faithful to use the Word of God like a scalpel to penetrate, to expose the deep, dark sickness inside that needs the healing balm of Jesus Christ, the gospel that can heal the sickness of our souls. It was on the Mount of Transfiguration that the Lord spoke in the hearing of the three closest apostles, disciples of Jesus, We said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. An echo back to Deuteronomy 18. That this is the prophet I spoke of. Listen to him. A prophet. And yet more than a prophet. The many earnest Muslims I met while in London last month were very eager to tell me how much they believed in Jesus. And believe that Jesus was indeed a prophet, the last great prophet before the coming of Muhammad. And uh, they tried to insist that they were more faithful to Jesus than I was. That they were more Christian than, than we were. Believing that Jesus would return at the end of time to judge the world in righteousness. Now, of course, Muslims reject original sin, the divine nature of Christ, his substitutionary death. And they just disregard knowing God personally or any assurance of salvation. So they are severely lacking. Lacking in knowledge what they are not lacking in false zeal. Jesus said to his disciples during the Last Supper, No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Jesus is the prophet who has come to make known to us the will of his Father that you and I are no longer slaves. We are not mere servants. We are friends of God. We are sons and daughters of the living God by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
that, that you and I have been brought into the family of God that we have in Jesus Christ, not only a prophet who sets us straight, who warns us of the judgment to come, he is our compassionate priest who sacrificed himself in our place that we might no longer face condemnation but enjoy the holy presence of God, that we are not slaves but sons and daughters of Christ, the King, of whose royal court we are representatives and ambassadors for the glory of God until he returns. In times of military crises, ancient Rome would oftentimes elect a dictator, giving to this man almost total power with with very few limitations to help to overcome a military or political crisis. And they wisely usually restricted the dictator's role for about six months. But sadly, over the years, uh, that tradition gave rise to the Caesars, who claimed for themselves absolute power, eliminating the Senate, rebuking any restrictions with impunity, and making themselves more and more divine. Both the Bible and the rest of human history is replete with a a litany of bad examples of rulers, of clergy, of teachers who abused their power. They make us long for a truly benevolent dictator. One who humbled himself, who submitted himself to the will of God, who fulfilled all righteousness, who paid the penalty of our sins and who now reigns is our interceding high priest and king who ushers in an eternal kingdom of righteousness, who will establish a new heavens and a new earth. Friends, let us depart here with the reminder not to hope in worldly princes with wealth and pomp and power, nor even mere men who preach the word. May we look to the one who is imperishable, incorruptible, who will uphold you, with insurmountable strength to that great and awesome day of his return. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you that in Christ you have met our every need for righteous rule and representation revealing the eternal word of God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king, for being perfect and holy, and we long for the day when we will see you face to face. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. To the glory of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.